Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors. Hello, online community. We're glad you guys are with us as well. Good morning. Um, we're going to do a little Bible study today. You ready? All right. Wow, I love it. They've got a couple woos about Bible study. That's the best. Um, would you grab a Bible in front of you? I'm going to come out there, actually, and, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit out here because I want to ask you to uh, make some observations about the text. So everybody grab a Bible and look at John 19. So you can do it on your device or, uh, or on the Bibles in front of you. John 19, the Bibles, the church Bibles, what page is that for somebody who's needing to find a page number? 1086 or 1087, thank you. It's at the end. We're going to be in verse 25 and following. Here's what we're doing. We're doing this series called Digging In, uh, and we're talking about the cross. Digging In, you've seen before. Digging In is a little branding we do that essentially says to us, we're going to go super deep on a topic or a passage of scripture and, uh, and really drill down in it. And during Lent, we've decided to dig in on the cross and the meaning of the cross. And the way we chose to do that was to do the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross, which uh, is part of kind of a church liturgy that, that happened around this uh, Lenten season. And we've already done three. How great was that? Three Ben Kern sermons in a row. So that's where you love Ben right there. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so we did three of those, those things already. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then last week, Ben did the, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Great sermons. If you're not in the habit, if, you're, if, you, get, if you miss and you're not in the habit of going on and, and either subscribing to our podcast or going on the website and linking to past sermons, you can get caught up. And we always encourage you to do that because we link these sermons and thinking together often. Well, today we're going to do this one. This is one of the famous last sayings of Jesus. It's, woman, here's your son, and then here is your mother, he says to the disciple John. Now, I'm not going to lie. When I did the sermon series and I planned it all out and plotted it out and assigned the preaching dates and looked at the last seven statements and got them all and realized I was preaching this one, I'm like, that is the short straw. This is a weird passage. Like of all the glorious things that we could be preaching about during Lent and this, the last seven sayings of Jesus, this is a weird one, which is why I'm down here and want you to do some Bible study with me, because I want you to look at it with me and go, why is this here? Like, what is this passage as a part of this crucifixion story? And so let's read it together, and afterward, I'm just going to ask a few of you to comment out loud, okay? Like, what do you see here? You know, you don't have to drill down like the whole full deepest meaning. Don't preach my sermon for me. Uh, you know, you don't have to, because what we're going to do first is just observe. This is what you do when you do Bible study. You just look and go, what's there? What questions does it raise? What is happening here? What do I notice about the text? Everybody ready? John 19, 25 and following. Near the cross of Jesus stood four women. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there, uh, saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, well, wait a minute, first of all, you've got it. the disciple he loved. This is John. This is the author, John. Now, how great is this, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That he, the writer of the story doesn't go, you know, me. He doesn't say me, like, so I was there. He calls himself, you know, everyone. His, Jesus' his favorite. <laughs> it doesn't say that. But he goes, the disciple uh, he loved. Okay, that is a healthy spiritual self-image. I'm going to tell you right now. 
there's two kinds of people in this room. Some that are like, totally get that. That's me. And other people are like, I wrestle to figure that out. So for some of you, that might be the only sermon you need to hear today, which is that there is a place to put yourself an understanding in your mindset where you're like, yeah, that's me, the disciple Jesus loved. I love that little side piece there. All right, so that's John. So back to verse 26. So when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, ma'am, it's not a derogatory term, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Isn't that a sweet little passage right there in the middle of all that? So here's the crucifixion story. Jesus is on the cross. They've nailed him to the cross. They've gambled for his clothes. They've mocked him already. He hasn't yet died, but Jesus looks down and goes, mom, here's your son. And John, here's your mom. And from that time on, John took her into his home. Now, what else do you see in this text? What do you notice here? What's, this, what, what's in this, this thing? What are some things that you, that you see? Yes. So uh, a, a woman in that time, uh, in that culture, if she had no male relative, would have nothing to eat. They would die of starvation because they needed a male to, to provide for them. Thank you. I'm going to repeat that for the, our online community as well, for everybody in the room. A woman at that time didn't have a way, she didn't have a job. She didn't have a way to take care of herself. Men provided for the family, and so Jesus was taking care of his mom. Good, good observation. Good. What else do you see in here? Yeah. Is Jesus on the cross when he said it? Oh, good question. Jesus was on the cross when he said it. Yeah. So he's hanging there, dying for the sins of the world. And he says this. Any insight around that? Why did you ask that question? He is in the middle of something super painful and significant, we could argue. And he goes, but I need to say this, which is exactly my point of bringing it up. Because in a minute, we're going to ask the question, why is this in here? Yeah, thank you. Good job. By the way, that's such a good job. I can tell you're a Bible scholar. Do you have one of these? This is so cool. Do you guys know this Bible? Have I told you about this? This is a Bible with color on every page, and it has all kinds of commentary and study things, and we'll tell you all these cultural things. These are so awesome. Can I give that to you? What's your name? My name is Max. Max, I'm Jeff. Nice to meet you. Okay, Max got a Bible. How many of you right now are jealous of Max? <laughs> because you wish I had another one up here. All right, I see that over there. Michael, in the back, will somebody come? Will you, you take this to Michael? Run down there, would you, bro? Michael, raise your hand. We got one. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, we got more of those. We got, they're so good. I don't have any more right now. <laughs> what else do you see in this text? Yeah. So what I don't see is where are the other disciples? What she makes it, what I don't see is where are the other disciples? There's four women and John. Yeah, that's interesting, right? If you read in the, your, the Bible with color on every page, it says there's a couple of theories actually that maybe the women, the women were a little safer for them to gather close to the crucifixion because if you were a rebel of Rome, which is why Jesus was being crucified, well, partly why Jesus was being crucified, that it would have been more dangerous for a man to be associated with him so the women could get a little closer more safely. But John was there. What do we know about John? 
Jesus loved him. <laughs> he was tight with Jesus. And we know that about the women as well. Other people argued, no, the Romans didn't care if you were a man or a woman. That was very dangerous to associate. But the, their love for Christ was so much that they would get close. What else do you see? One more. Yes. If I had a mic, I would drop it right now. <laughs> so online community, what she said was, and I won't say it as eloquently, she said that here's Jesus honoring his, you're told, we're told in the Ten Commandments to honor father and mother. And he's honoring his father by doing his will, by going to the cross, not my will, but yours, he said in the garden a few, few paragraphs before. And he's honoring the law and his mother by taking care of her. What it teaches us, she said, was, tell me your name? Emily. Emily. What Emily said it, what it teaches us is even in our darkest moments, we can honor God and be obedient to him. See, we're doing this. Can we just go home? That'd be awesome. <laughs> what we're doing in this series is to say what was happening on the cross and what does it teach us about our lives, <laughs> our lives. And that's one of the things that it teaches us. That even in the most difficult times, we're going to be able to honor our father and uh, honor Jesus and live out his example. Well, I'm going to talk about a couple other things that it does. And uh, by the way, I have a list of the women here, and I'm not going to, I don't have time. I went late last hour, and so I don't have time to go through them. But it's really fascinating to look at this uh, list of women that were there, these four women, and cross-reference them. Yo, yo, Bible study nerd alert, cross-reference them. Go to the place, the other crucifixion stories, and see what it says. You'll find them out. You'll find out that his mother's sister, uh, Salome or Salome, she it mentions her by name, and then it says she's the mother of James and John, the disciples, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, which means that James and John, and John wrote the book, was Jesus's cousin. Did you know that? I spent $100,000 on seminary. I did not know that. <laughs> and so what we do know, though, about these guys is that every one of them had a very intimate and counter and love for Christ, and they were, and it uses the word in the text, they were near the cross because they wanted to be with Jesus. Now, that's not my sermon. Well, it is my sermon because I just said it, but it's not my main point of my sermon. But these guys, as you drill into their stories, including Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene's the only person who's mentioned in all four crucifixion accounts that she was there. And the only thing we know about Mary Magdalene is that Jesus had delivered her from seven demons. Her life was so bound up and broken and the evil one had such dominion in her life that she never could have dreamt that she would find freedom and life and Jesus gave it to her and you can bet she was going to be with him all the way to the end. Which is probably relevant in so many ways as we go forward. But this is what I want you to know. Part of the meaning of the cross, you guys, is that Jesus is initiating, sorry, <clears throat> Jesus is initiating a new era in redemptive history. Now think about it. The, 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 
Redemptive history, you know, God came and revealed himself to the Jewish people, brought the law, taught them to be God's people, said from them the whole world was going to be saved one day, taught them about who he was. That was one era of Jewish history, uh, redemptive history. And then the next era is Jesus shows up and walks the earth and calls disciples to himself and says to them, this is how it's gonna go down. And then he goes to the cross to die for our sins and then be resurrected. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's initiating a new era. And that new era has also been called by people the now but not yet. And that's the era we're in right now where salvation has been accomplished. Praise God, hallelujah, Jesus has defeated death. All of our sins have been forgiven because of his sacrifice on the cross, and no one can take us out of God's hands. But we still await the kingdom of God coming in its fullness, right? We've not experienced full restoration. And so we're in this now but not yet time where Jesus, what do we know about that time? What we know about that time is Jesus is no longer physically here, but he's present by his spirit among us. But it says because because we can't see him, then we live this life by faith. And that in the middle of the now but not yet is one of the most difficult times to live if you think about it because it's like it's good news, but not yet. We're, we're restored to a relationship with God, but not fully yet. Like there's this waiting and this longing for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And Jesus is initiating that. So in, the con- in that context, uh, oh, and I should say this about the now but not yet time. <laughs> He's initiating that the church is going to be by the Holy Spirit within it, his presence in the world. So we also call this the church age. This is the age we're living in right now where the church becomes the hope of the whole world because it embodies, possesses, shares, lives the good news that Jesus is life. And so this is what we know about what the cross is. So now I just want to ask you then, so then what is Jesus saying about this not yet time, now but not yet time that he's initiating by being on the cross and doing something and saying this, this, this teaching that Max was just, was just sharing about. Like what, why would he do that while he was on the cross? Why this bizarre passage? At least two thoughts come to mind and I want to talk about in the balance of my time. Number one, he cares, this is what, sorry, I like that, that, that slide. Let's look at that for a sec. What will characterize this interim time for us? What will characterize this time that Jesus initiated on the cross and what do we learn about that time by this particular odd little three-verse section about John and his mother? Two things I think we learned. One, he cares for us and about the details of our lives in the not yet. He cares for us and about the details of our lives in the not yet. Like, they, like you saw that, like it was so intimate. It was such a like, what, why is he, he's hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. It would be like, yo, mom, I got my own problems here. But instead there's this intimate connection with his mom. You guys, it's not, this is, this, this is not um, uh, inconsequential. This, this is that Jesus would say, while I'm dying for the sins of the world, I see your grief. I see that you will not be able to take care of yourself after I go. I see that you'll need to be taken care of. I see what you're going through. You guys, it's so significant that he would take care of his mom and, and, uh, and, and, and talk with his friend during that time. 
And maybe, by the way, we, the scriptures tell us that Jesus' brothers weren't believers yet. So he, she wasn't going to get, as a believer, she wasn't going to get the same care that she needed from her son, who, her other sons, who were not yet believers in Christ. But, but this is addressing, you know, let's broaden it from that situation. This is addressing us wrestling with all the questions. Does he see me? Does he know the details? Does he know that I've been without a job for three months? Does he know that I carry this anxiety? Does he know that I'm lacking here? Does he know that if I don't get some direction, I'm going to go, it's going to drive me crazy with the anxiety of not knowing what is ahead. Does he know my pain? Does he feel it for me? This is the question that we carry, guys. This is our core doubts. I mean, we all doubt, is this thing real? Like, is God even there? And was Jesus really God? Like, we all doubt that from time to time. Every single person does. But our real doubts, because then we go, yeah that, yeah, that makes sense. But our real doubts is that he's in heaven dying for the sins of the world. Now, you know, having died for the sins of the world, running all the things. Our real doubts are that in the midst of that, he goes, and I see you and your life and your struggles, and what you're carrying, and what you're longing for, and I see it, and know it, and I am in it with you. That's where our doubts are. And I think that Jesus is initiating this church age. He's initiating this now, but not yet, that we're all living in, where we're supposed to be this presence for God in the world. And one of the things he wants to say by putting this little section in here is, and I see what you're going through in the middle of the now, but not yet. That, to me, is so encouraging. And so like Jesus, we would expect him to have done that. And it battles against that deepest uh, wounding in our lives, that deepest doubt and fear in our lives that he doesn't see you, that he doesn't know us. And it moves him to compassion for his mom, which means he's doing the same thing for us. He's moved to compassion with the things that we're experiencing. Where we're like, Jesus, if you were right here walking with me, it would be easier if I, if I knew the end goal of what's happening here, if I knew how this trial was going to resolve, if I could see and feel a glimpse of healing that I need, God, that would be so much more encouraged. And, and, and we're now being healed, but not yet fully. We're now like walking with God, but not, don't have full clarity. Like he, he sees all that and he knows it. That to me is of unending comfort. Can you imagine Imagine yourself transported in time with your life and all the stuff you're carrying and you're standing at the foot of the cross and Jesus is dying, this incredible agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember Ben's sermon, like this is a spiritual separation from the fellowship of the Trinity on behalf of us. He's in separation from God for us and the physical agony and he's hanging on the cross for the sins of the world and he looks at you if you're there at the foot of the cross. And he's like, Spencer, I know what you're carrying, man, and I will not leave you alone in it. I will meet your needs, and I'm with you, and I'm in your story. And he looks at every one of us, Gigi, I'm in your story while he's on the cross. That's why this story is here. And what it teaches us is the cross is initiating a new era in the redemptive history. And what he's saying is, and he will care about our lives and the details of our lives, even in the midst of this season, as Emily so eloquently shared with us earlier. Even in the hardest moments, we can honor our God and serve him. Man, I love that. And even about many of the things in our lives, he goes, and what you're going through right now, 
It's not as it should be. And it won't always be that way. And I have compassion on you as you wait now, but for the not yet. One day it'll be fully restored, but I know not now. And he has compassion and care for our lives, even in the middle of that. That should minister to us in the deepest core because that gets at our deepest core fears. This is why the scriptures talk about worrying. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 6. Look at this voice, when he, this verse. Remember he said, so don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. I mean, this is such, and some, for some of us, this is rather archaic, not for others. Some of you are having a difficult time making ends meet and putting food on the table. But for, for, for many of us, we're like, well, I don't, that's not really my worry. My worry is whether or not I'm going to have enough for retirement. My worry is whether or not I have enough grace to deal with my boss in this particular job. What I worry about is whether or not I can keep sustaining and worrying about my kid. I worry about whether my kid's going to be okay. Like these are the things that we worry about. And of course it applies to that too. So Jesus is saying, don't worry saying, does God know my story? Don't worry saying, is God going to meet me where I'm anxious? Don't worry, is God going to take care of my family? Verse 32, for those that do not know God run after these things. What does that mean? That means that people who don't have hope that God is in their story have to figure it out themselves. But look at the next line. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is the hope that we have, and this is what Jesus is communicating on the cross. He leaves us in each, oh, sorry, no, let not, let's not go there, there. He cares for the details of our lives. There's a verse that I didn't put on the screen, but it's so similar to that. It's in Luke chapter 12. You can look it up. It's where Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, they're not that important. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Remember that verse? Isn't that incredible? And so do not be afraid, it says, for you are worth more than many sparrows. The thought of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world going, I know every single thought and care and concern and obstacle in your life. I know it all. And I will take care of you even though you're going to be in the now but not yet. That's why this passage is in here and what it teaches us about this in-between time. Secondly, he leaves us in each other's hands in the not yet. So the first one, he cares for the details of our lives. The second one is, and he leaves us in each other's hands. He leaves us in one another's hands. That's exactly, of course, what the story is all about. John, here's your mother. I'm going to put her into your hands. M woman, this is your son. I'm going to put him into your hands. You guys are going to be a new family now. I want you to take care of her. This is just an image of, of, of all the sweet and, and, and simple ways in which we we care for one another, but it also manifests way deeper than that because if this is the church age, what he's saying is, you people who know me, you go take care of people. You go help lead people to life. You look at their lives and their longings and you help lead them to Jesus because it's going to get rough and I'm going to take care of you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you're going to need each other to do that. I love that. I just think that's so incredible that he would say, I'm going to put these two people together and go, you guys need each other. Dobkins, I've got a little water bottle right there. Would you bring it to me? No, thanks, Mark. <clears throat> um, Jesus is going, look at, this is a calling. So not only has, does he know us and know the details, but he's given us a calling to care for each other. 
and to care for the world. By extension, it's not just his best friend and his mom. By extension, he's like, the church is going to need each other. And by extension, you're going to need to go out and help people find life in Christ. Tell them I'm busy, okay? I can't pick that up right now. So in this new era of the not yet, the church is given this task, helping people find life, encouraging people, leading them to Jesus, rescuing them from the, the, um, the way in which the enemy, like Mary Magdalene's story, has cornered their life with his death and destruction and dehumanization and keeping them far from God. And we get to be on the hunt to love and care for people and bring them figuratively and, and literally into our home, the text says. From then on, he brought her into his home. He was sold out to care for her and her needs. And that's what the church does. So the world might know that Christ is life. Is that not incredible news? This is why the, this, you know, there's that famous passage in John 21. I want to go to it again. I can't preach all the aspects of it. But one of the things that it communicates, this is Peter's being restored to, to uh, uh, being a, a Christ follower. Remember G- Peter uh, denied Jesus three times. And then at the end, when Jesus had been resurrected and was having breakfast with his disciples on the beach, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Remember this passage? And what he's doing is restoring Peter. But remember what the call is. Look at the text with me real quick. It's on the screen here. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Lord, yeah, Peter said, you know I love you. And Jesus said, say it with me, feed my lambs. And then the second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, say it with me, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he knew what was happening, that he was, he was being rebuked and restored at the same time for having denied Jesus three times. But Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. This, this, you guys, is the calling on all of our lives. And you see what what is there. We are to go and love the world. We're going to go to hunt down where there's brokenness and where there's bondage and where there's evil. And we're going to bring the love and the hope and the grace and the mercy of Christ everywhere we go. This is what the church does. And Jesus has called us into that life. Go feed my sheep. And notice a couple things about it. Our love for Jesus is the foundation of it all. That's why these women who loved him and John, his best friend, were there at the cross. Our love for Jesus. Jesus, do you, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you do. Feed my sheep. That's a, that's a direct translation. And so as we love Christ, it isn't for our warm fuzzies, but it's for the mission of the world to set people free, to hold people's hands, to lead people into the presence of Christ. And man, look how costly it is as well. From then on, John took her into his home. He took care of her. He took her on. He didn't dabble. And you see that also the family dynamic. There was a new family getting created. I could preach that forever. This family of God we have. You may have an incredible family, super functional, really close. Everybody loves each other. It's all great. But there's something that God does in the church age where he brings the family of God together and says, you need each other. Now go help people 
join the family. It's not easy. That's why scriptures say in Galatians 6 2, carry one another's what? Burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We have the ministry to go out and to find the lost and to find the broken within us and outside of us and bring them to Jesus for life and healing. Again, he leaves us in each other's hands in the now, but not yet. He knows our details. I know what you're going to go through. You guys are going to need each other. And so I'm going to give you a calling to find people and hold their hands and walk with them in their needs. Can I give you story time as we're done? Michael, come up and lead us in worship in a second. I wanna, I'm going to read you a story. You ready for a little story time to close? I heard somebody say, yes, please. Yeah, that's, thank you. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe found this story at the end of that book that is so illustrative of this. Aslan, the Christ character, if you've not read the, the book or seen the movie, it's, it's just an incredible picture of the gospel uh, of Christ. And Aslan has already died for Narnia. It's been under the control of the witch, the enemy. And all of Narnia has been in winter. It says it's winter and never Christmas. And so there's no life and no color and the witch has been a domineering evil leader who turned people into stone statues, which is a picture of the dehumanization and the death that is brought by the enemy. And they've been waiting, and Aslan died to defeat her spell. And as, when Aslan then rose from the dead and was restored to life, the winter started to thaw. And this is now after Aslan's resurrection, and they are now together with Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, who are kings and queens, which is the church. They're the leaders of the kingdom. And they've gone to the witch's house. And this is their ministry of restoration. Hear this sweet story. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people too. It's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. He was indeed he had bounded up to a stone lion and he breathed on him. And then without, without waiting a moment, he whisked around, almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail, and he breathed also on a stone dwarf, which was standing a few feet from the lion with its back to it. And then he pounced on a tall stone dryad, which stood beyond the dwarf, turned rapidly aside to deal with a stone rabbit on his right and rushed on to two centaurs. And at that moment, Lucy said, oh, look back at the lion. Now, I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon the stone line, he had looked just the same. And then a tiny streak of gold began to run along its white marble back. And then it spread. The color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. And then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stony folds rippled into living hair. And then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a great prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life, and so he lifted up one of them and scratched himself. And then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Of course, the children's eyes turned to follow the lion, 
But the sight they saw around them was so wonderful that they soon even forgot about him. For everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked like a zoo. Creatures were turning after Aslan and dancing round him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white of stone, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors, glossy chestnut sides of centaurs, indigo horns of unicorns, dazzling plumage of birds, ready brown of foxes, dogs, and satyrs, yellow stockings and crimson hoods of dwarfs. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings and brayings and yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, and songs and laughter. And now for the inside of the house, said Aslan, look for them all, everyone. Go up the stairs and down the stairs. Look through the witch's chamber. Leave no corner unsearched. You never know where, so where some poor creature may be concealed. And into the interior they all rushed, and for several minutes the whole of that dark, horrible, fusty old castle echoed with the opening of windows and with everyone's voices crying out at once, don't forget the dungeons, give us a hand with this door, here's another winding stair, oh I say here's a poor little kangaroo, call Aslan, oh how it smells in here, look for the trap doors, up here there are a whole lot more on the landing, and the best of all was when Lucy came rushing upstairs shouting out, Aslan, Aslan, I found my friend Mr. Tumnus who rescued me, oh do come quick. And a moment later, Lucy and the little fawn were holding one another by both hands and dancing round and round for joy. But at last, the ransacking of the witch's fortress was ended. The whole castle stood empty with every door and window open and the light and the sweet spring air flooding in to all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. And the whole crowd of liberated statues surged back into the courtyard and gathered together. That's our ministry. That's the work of God in the world. That's where we, in this now but not yet, in people's pain and longing and anxiety and need for life, that's where we rush into every dark corner in one another's lives and out into our spheres of influence in every place that we walk into. And we bring the healing of Aslan who turns stone into life and who brings hope for every human soul. Why did Jesus on the cross in the midst of his suffering for the world say, John, mom, you guys need each other because it was a symbol that in the coming age, we all were gonna have that ministry of being cared for in the detail of our lives and then being given the calling to go out and care for one another so that everyone might find Christ. Man, what good news and what an epic call on our lives. For if we are too preoccupied or too busy or frankly too selfish to rush into all the dark places, then we're wasting every day that God gives us. It's the church age. It's the ministry he's given us. Let's be those individuals and that church together. Let's stand and celebrate this good news and worship together.